0: the reading for today is Matthew 7, verses 1 through 12. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you; seek, and you will find; knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you If his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of God. You may be seated.
1: Join me in prayer. Lord, we we come confessing our need for you, Lord. God, unless you speak, how could we hear? God, unless you reveal yourself to us, how could we see? Lord, I pray that today you would fill our hearts with you. Just like we need food, Lord, we need your word. Just like we need water, Lord, we need to have our... Th- thirst quenched by coming to you who offer us water and freely give us drink. So, Father, would you do what only you can do, and that's cause our hearts to grow more deeply and fully and finally in love with you. In Jesus' name, the church says together, amen, amen. I've read a lot of commentaries Commentaries, by the way, are when scholarly people do scholarly things like comment on the verses of the Bible. And there's some wonderful commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount. And I found this theme repetitive in them, is that if you were to summarize the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' message, His sermon in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, if you were to take those three chapters and summarize them, You could do so by taking Jesus' words when he says, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus turns to this person who asked him the question, and he says, it's real simple love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he says, the second of these is like it love your neighbor as yourself. And here we have some very well-known passages of Scripture. How many of you heard the verse, Judge not, lest ye be judged? That's the King James Version. Anybody heard that verse before? Anybody? Anybody? Well, only only two or three of us. Wow. Well, I'm going to hammer you with it here today. Um, uh, How many of you heard of the golden rule before? Treat others as you would like to be treated, Right? And it's interesting how Jesus lays this out. He he doesn't lay this command out. Love others or treat others the way you would like to be treated in the negative sense. He doesn't say, you don't want to be stolen from, right? So don't steal from others. You don't want to be bullied, do you? So don't bully others. But he turns with love and he says, you know what it feels like to be loved? To be cared for? He says, love and care for others in the same way. He's teaching us how to love others by giving us grace. And then in the middle of this sermon on loving others, which really that's what it's about, he, he turns us to the love of God who patiently and steadfastly provides all of our needs beyond what we could ask, imagine, or think. And so he beckons us to come to him Even in this, to come to him. And he says that the Father is ready to give when you ask of him, when you seek of him, and when you knock. In fact, when you ask, your request is heard. When you seek, you will find. And when you knock the door, it will be opened unto you. But I think Jesus also knows the propensity of his people. I think he also knows that once people come to him and follow him, they don't become perfect immediately. I think he understands for the the in the church, the the sin that still remains and that in the church, there is a propensity just like outside of the church for judgmentalism, harsh criticism turning towards others in disdain, turning turning towards others in self-righteousness, that even in the church, there's some fair pharisaical tendencies that we might look down upon others because we think that somehow God looks highly upon us and we've earned that and they didn't. And so they have to change and we don't. And that's the the way that Jesus comes at this particular passage of preaching and teaching is He wants us to see here that rather than judging others with a Pharisaical tendency, like the Pharisees, by the way, if you don't know the Pharisaical tendencies, the Pharisees were the religious elite of their times. They thought that they had everything right and that because they were always in the right that God must agree with them. And so they treated others in a prideful and self-righteous way and Jesus here opens these words judge not that you not be judged Scott Sauls is a pastor in Nashville Tennessee he says be kind because everyone you meet is fighting a hard hidden battle be kind the irony of that statement is that it's actually God's kindness that leads us to repentance And then when we see someone who's walking in a wayward way, in a sinful way, the way that they're going to be drawn to repentance is by our pressing in with kindness. So be kind because everyone, listen to me, everyone, everyone, everyone is facing a hard and hidden battle. This week I I spoke to several people who were going through a divorce. Several. A hard Hidden battle. This week I spoke to a woman who told me that her father in law, who's in his 60s, is transitioning to become a woman, and her family really is heartbroken and they don't know what to do. They don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to express the love of God, even in a situation and circumstance like that. I spoke to a man who shared with me, I've known this person for years who shared with me that he's struggled with same-sex attraction and that he's fighting hard to save his marriage right now. These are real-life struggles, right? And there's lots of issues of sin in these stories. Lots of issues of sin in these stories. But how are we to handle it as the church? How are we to handle it as the people of God? I know how the Pharisees would handle it. In judgment, in ridicule, in mockery. And they would so make a mockery of the grace of God. But you have a God who is gracious and loving. A God who does not turn a blind eye towards sin, but a God who forgives sin who calls sin as it is. He's not afraid to call a spade a spade, but yet he's also not afraid of your brokenness and sin. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The church should be the safest place for people to deal with sin. Do you hear me? The church should be the safest place in the whole wide world for people to deal with sin, but the church is not that, is it? Not that. I want that for Crosspoint. I want that for cross point. I want that environment. And by the grace of God, I think we're getting there. Are we perfect? No, but I want that. There are there is a, a poll that was done about a decade ago where they polled millennials who weren't churchgoers. So how many more millennial polls do you want? Well, here's another one. Um, so they, they polled millennials m- millennials who were non-churchgoers and they asked them to kind of fill in the blank. They gave them Several different words that they could fill in the blank with. And the question was this the church is fill in the blank, (laughs) right? Uh, The church is gracious. The church is loving. You know, an overwhelming number of people just voted in that way, right? No, that wasn't true. The church is fill in the blank, judgmental, 87%. The church is fill in the blank, 85% says hypocritical. The church is, fill in the blank, homophobic, 91%. 70% says that the church is insensitive. And a decade later, after that poll is done, we're not gaining ground with millennials. In fact, the under 40 crowd in the church is almost, almost becoming, uh, disappearing, leaving the church in droves. And now, you, you might not agree with their assessment I hope you don't agree with their assessment. You might not agree with the way that they they say these things, but, but listen, it's a perception. And sometimes perception is reality. And if perception is reality, then how do we as the people of God redeem the way our culture views the church? An author named Shane Claiborne, he says this about the church. The church is like Noah's Ark. It stinks. But if you get out of it, you'll drown. <laughs> right? Right? I mean, you can imagine, you, you, the, you know, it's not a glamorous story. The animals marching two by two, hurrah, hurrah. They go into the ark and there's so much stench that there is no place out to go to escape it. It's such a mess. But man, if you jump out, you're dead. Because the only thing out there is the waters that will kill you. And the irony of the ark in the church is that the same waters that brought judgment upon the world were the waters that caused the church to rise above it in salvation. This is the nature of what Christ has done. This is why Jesus was baptized. Because he went under the water of God's judgment for you and he came out alive. And so when we demonstrate the love of God to a lost and broken world, it's not about my righteousness, but his. It's not about my goodness, but his. And listen to me, friends, this is really important because you and I are glory thieves. We are glory thieves. We want it for ourselves. I want it for ourselves. I'm fighting it this morning, but the glory, friends, belongs to God. And so it's about his glory and not our own. And so we should be some of the most humble people in all of the world when it comes to dealing with sin in those around us. And so we're going to go through this in three parts. Verses 1 through 5, we're going to talk about plank removal. The word here is actually log removal. Some translations use the word plank. So it's a very surgical procedure. Number two, we are going to talk about the throwing of pearls. That Jesus mentions a kind of obscure text, a little bit hard to understand, but we're going to unpack that one as well. And then the third and final thing we're going to talk about is the loving provision of God, our father. The loving provision of God, our father. And so let's look at the the plank removal in verses one through five. Judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. That's the verse of our cultural moment. Your non-Christian friends, if they know a Bible verse, that's the verse they know. That's the verse they throw out. That's the verse they tell us about. And oftentimes this verse is used as a defense mechanism for me to do me and you to do you. And you don't have to worry about that, right? But is that really the heart of God for the people of God? Or does God call us to fight with a ferocious love for one another even in the midst of us walking in waywardness and sin? But Jesus here does say the word judge not lest you be judged. We want a position, right? And that position that we want in life we have to acknowledge is the seat of judgment. And what Jesus is saying here is those who want the seat of the judge will one day be on the bench. Not the bench, but the dock. You'll be the one being judged at some point. That's what John Stott, an author and pastor, says. Those who are on the bench in judgment will one day be on the dock. And here's the thing that Jesus wants us to understand as it relates to these verses. The same standards that we apply to the judgment of others will be applied to us. And so when we get on the seat of judgment and we think that we are the ones who are the judge, our cry is for justice, justice. Justice, but when we're sitting in the dock, you know what our cry is? Mercy, mercy, mercy. And so the call of the Christian in the place of judgment is that we don't get to sit there, but God is there. God is the one who alone can judge sin. Now, does this mean that we suspend judgment? No. Here's what it doesn't mean. Author John Stott puts this really well. He says, Our Lord's injunction, command here, to judge not, cannot be understood as a command to suspend our critical faculties in relation to other people. Meaning that you've been given a mind and that mind is meant for critical thinking and that critical thinking is meant for you to determine right and wrong even as it relates to other people. That's a good and a God-given gift. But he does say, uh, and he says to turn a blind eye to their faults, pretending not to notice them, or to eschew all criticism and to refuse to discern between truth and error, goodness and evil. So the call of the Christ follower is not to suspend all judgment. It's not. We are called to serve one another by helping them grow closer to the Lord. And that means in our journey of growing closer to the Lord, which is called sanctification, it's a big theological word, that means that we have to call sin, sin. But we have to do that with humility and grace. We have to do that without a spirit of judgmentalism or harsh criticism. And this is what Jesus is warning us against. Verse 2, for with the same judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with, and, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. The way that you judge others. Listen, the way that you judge others is the same way by which one day you'll be judged. This is something that should cause us to pause and say, am I walking rightly in the way that I view others? And so it's not even about viewing others. It's about looking inward and looking at ourselves. And that's what Jesus wants to put our focus on is our need for God's grace and mercy. Our need for God to work in our lives to get rid of the lingering sin that continues to exist. Verse three, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye where there is a log in your own eye? Jesus is using a hyperbole. It's a pictorial illustration here. And and Jesus is a carpenter. And so he's kind of pulling back from from the, the thought of being a carpenter. And there's a plank that is in someone else's eye. And while this plank exists in someone else's eye from across the room, they see that there's a foreign object in someone else's eye, a speck. And, and rather than noticing that in their own eye they have a railroad tie coming out, they see the foreign object that exists in their other, the, the, this other person's eye and so they get up and they go there even though their vision is obscured by their own sin and shortcomings they go and they see this speck in someone else's eye and they say to their, their brother or their sister, they say, you have a speck in your eye. Would you like me to remove that for you. <laughs> I remember when Carrie and I were married for about a year, and this extended family member uh, was talking to us about marriage and trying to give us marriage advice. And the problem was is that their marriage was falling apart. So it was really difficult for me to hear from this person marital advice when their marriage was falling apart. and I was thinking to myself, You know, we've got a lot to learn, but they have a lot more to learn. And, you know, me trying not to sit in the place of judgment, but realizing that this advice is no good. And it wasn't because the advice wasn't any good, but it's because the source. Well, they had a log in their own eye. They had a plank coming out of their own eye and they couldn't see it. And a year later, their marriage falls apart. And I thought to myself, I'm so glad I didn't listen to them. But we have people that are in our lives that have tried to bring correction to our lives, but in their bringing correction to our lives, they're discredited because they're not credible, right? And the, the scripture here is calling us to be a people of credibility. And credibility means that we look towards God to deal with our own sin and shortcomings. It means that whenever we see the speck in someone else's eye, we can assume that there's potentially, maybe even probably, a plank in our own. And so we deal with a sin that exists in our hearts. And rather than going first to our brother telling them to deal with their sin or a sister telling them to deal with their sin, we in humility ask the God of creation who wants us to grow and walk in holiness to help us. And maybe we even turn to the brother or sister around us to help us show us what we cannot see. D.A. Carson explains this really well. And I'm telling you, this was poignant for me because in the church, it's so subtle that we think that we're more righteous than others and we look down upon others. And so there's this tendency that we can have. And he says it this way about himself. He says, I tell myself I can afford to look my long nose Uh, down my long nose at my less disciplined peers and colleagues. Or perhaps I've actually experienced a generous measure of God's grace, but somehow I've misconstrued it, and I've come to think I've earned it. As a result, I may look with disapproval at those whose vision, in my view, is not as large as my own, whose faith is not as stable, whose grasp of God is not as masterful, whose service record is not as impressive, Whose efforts have not as been his have not been as of substantial. These people who are diminished in my eyes, I consider their value as people inferior to my own value. Now, here's where this hits really hard for us. I read my Bible every day. How come you can't read your Bible every day? Man, my prayer life. My prayer life is vibrant. I've worked really hard to have a good prayer life. You should be able to do it too. Man, you don't have anybody discipling you. You don't have anybody working with you. I mean, I've I've built this in my life. And rather than seeing things as a gift of God's grace, we think that we've earned it. And as a result of us earning God's approval, we think that others are more inferior to us. So therefore, God must not love them And so I'm holy and God's loved me. But what we've done is we've made a mockery of the grace of God because I applaud those who read their scriptures because it is a good and faithful way of life. I applaud people who have... have Developed a prayer life and I want you to as a church it is a good and faithful way of life I applaud people who have pursued discipleship because it is a good and faithful pursuit of God but I will not applaud those who think that they've earned it and neither would God and listen I've done it and I think because I've done it God must agree with me and so when I judge others God must agree with me When in fact, when you're judging others, God's saying to you, they've got a speck and you've got a log and your sin needs to be dealt with more than theirs. That's what self-righteousness is. It's a sin that corrupts and needs to be dealt with that God warns us against. Verse five, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That word hypocrite's been around for a while, hasn't it? Jesus uses it. Jesus uses it. And so it means that we should take notice that there's this hypocritical tendency for us to be an actor, to pretend. And the pretension here is that we pretend that we don't have sin. And John, 1 John says that if we say we have no sin, then we're a liar and the truth of God isn't in us. And so can we be real for a moment and say, man, I am on this journey and my life is a mess and I am in need of God's grace. And I, and, and friends, we are all growing in holiness together and godliness. But until the day of redemption, we're all going to be imperfect people who continually need God's grace. And God's grace is given to us through one another. And when we When we see the speck in our brother or sister's eye, it's just that reminder that before I go to them, I need to ask God's help to see the log that exists in my own. So there's this four-step part to speck removal. I want to go through that here real quickly. Um, The loving art of speck removal. Number one. Ready? Number one. See the log in your own eye. That's step number one. If you're going to remove the speck from someone else's eye, you got to see the log in your own eye. Step number two, remove it and repent. <laughs> Deal with it. That's what remove it means. Deal with it. Deal with it at the throne of grace of the God who gives you mercy at your time of need and repent. Trust in Jesus. Turn to the Lord. Step number three, see the speck that's in your brother or your sister's eye. The call isn't not to... to to pretend that it doesn't exist in their eye or just to move on. Actually, no, you're still supposed to see the speck that exists in their eye. And number four, you're called to help them remove it and point them to the grace of God so that they would walk in repentance. It's a four-step process into dealing with sin on a one-to-one level. I'm so thankful that God gives it to us. And the first step is the reminder that you are in need of God's mercy greater than you think. And here's why that's so important. Because if you don't think that you need God's mercy, then you'll never give it. You'll never give it. But we have a God who stands ready to give mercy. And that mercy is given through us. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. You know, we, we, we... I think we would be all afraid if the secret thoughts of our hearts were exposed before everyone here to see. We'd all be afraid. We'd all be trembling. Maybe it even makes you anxious to think about that. Anybody. There's there's nobody in here that if our sins were broadcasted on the screen, we wouldn't be horrified. But sometimes sin is exposed and it looks like a horrifying reality. Do you know how the church is called to walk in that? It's called the walk in that is by realizing that, man, you are so bad that Jesus had to die. But at the same time, you're so dearly loved that Jesus gladly died. And so when sin is exposed, it's a good time to tell them the good news of the gospel. And that's what you need. When your hidden life is exposed, when that fight is exposed for the world to see, Rather than judgment, you need grace. And you need people that say that, man, there's a God who is just and who will will, uh, give sin what it deserves through penalty and punishment and hell. But there's an answer. It's repent. It's turn to the Lord who stands ready to forgive and he will not forsake you. And so the next part we see here is throwing pearls Verse six, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw pearls to pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. (laughs) This verse is somewhat obscure. You got dogs and pigs and pearls. How do you have these things together? So dogs and pigs were scavenging animals. They were unclean. It wasn't like you had 20 happy labradoodles that were ready to play fetch with you and go swimming in your pool. This isn't the dogs that were existing in Jesus's time. They were scavengers. They would eat the carcasses of even dead human bodies, right? And so they were unclean. The pigs weren't cute, cuddly little pigs. They were like big honking wild boars. And so in order to make these scavengers happy, you had to throw them some food. And if you threw them some food, then their hunger would be satisfied and they'd like you. But if you threw them a rock, then they would take a bite of the rock and realize it wasn't food and they would turn on you and attack you. And what Jesus is saying here is don't give these hungry vipers or these hungry malicious animals the pearls. What are the pearls? The pearls we see is the pearl of great price. It's what Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold it, sold all that he had and bought it the pearl of great price is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus is saying to us to save our breath on those who absolutely won't hear it and are vicious against it because if you throw a dog or a pearl a dog or a pig a pearl what are they going to do they're going to take a bite they're going to spit it out and they're going to trample it underfoot and so there are some in this world that are so malicious towards the gospel that find it so offensive that they make it their life's mission to fight it and fight it and fight it and Jesus says don't waste your breath irony of this is he just said don't judge and here he's saying you can judge here you can judge here And how many of us have had those conversations with those people that has gone nowhere and in fact we've become a source of ridicule against others and what Jesus says to his disciple is knock the dust off your feet and do it again. Go somewhere else. And that was actually the, the ministry of Paul the apostle. He would go to a place, he would preach the gospel. Oftentimes he would start in the temple with the Jews. He would proclaim the gospel to the Jews. The Jews would reject him and he would say, okay, that's fine, I'm going to the Gentiles. And so, there's a time and place where we should know that there's so many people, there's so many fish in the pond, and we can share the gospel, and there will be someone that will hear it. There will be someone who will count that pearl as precious and won't trample it underfoot and attack you. And so, there's some things that we learn from this verse. We learn that not all people are open to the gospel. It's the first thing we learn. Not all people are open to the gospel. Hey, shocker there. How many of you have never been open to the gospel at one point in your life? I have. Not all people are open to the gospel. Number two, it shouldn't surprise us when Christians or non-Christians behave like non-Christians. That shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us when people get adversarial with you because you are a Christian and you're not willing to be quiet about it. That you will live in such a way and, and, and speak in such a way that tells of the good news of Jesus And it also tells us that there are some who are so hard hearted that we shouldn't waste our time on them because that precious time can be given to others. What this really is, is an acknowledgement that only God can save people. Only God can do it. And you know who may have been in that category, I think? The Apostle Paul. Because he was going after believers with a ferocious, murderous heart. And somehow along the way, it wasn't somebody who shared the gospel with them in that moment. It was a direct revelation of God. And he was brought to his knees. It's saying that I entrust them with Jesus. And Jesus will turn them over to Satan or Jesus will save them. And I'm entrusting them to him. Then we see the Lord's provision. The Father's loving provision. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. There's a little intimacy that we find here with Christ that I I, I don't want us to miss it in in some of the excitement that even I might have projected in in the first part of this, but there's some intimacy. It's as if Jesus is, is getting down And he's whispering to his people. And he says, ask the Father. Seek the Father. Knock. Jesus knows that the Father, that the Father's love and his grace is so good that once we taste it, we'll keep going back to it. When I was a little over a year ago, I had surgery on my my thyroid. I had a partial thyroidectomy, and um, uh, there was an expense that I wasn't anticipating in life. You know, you have medical expenses, and you don't really plan on paying your full deductible, right, for your insurance plan, and so um, I remember talking to my dad about it, and I remember actually asking him for help. I said, Dad, can I borrow some money? Um, I remember my dad just with gladness, say, of course, and I had a plan to pay him back, and You know, the irony of it is I asked him for help and he and mom came up and they uh, took care of uh, some of the things for me uh, so that Carrie can uh, do what she had to do with the kids and and get ready for me coming home. And so they came to the hospital with me. They took me home from the hospital. And I remember after uh, I was able to have the money back and I wrote dad a check and put it in the mail and dad called me up and he said, "Um, why did you send me a check? I said, because I told you I'd pay you back. He said, well, I ripped it up. You're not paying me back. <laughs> and I thought to myself, man, what a gracious love. And when you look at your father's love, and I don't know your father. I can only give you experience from my father. And not all fathers are like my dad. But when you look at your father and you place him against the holiness of God, there's only one word that our earthly fathers uh, can be summarized with when you place them against the holiness of your heavenly father, it's evil. Like that's me for my kids, evil. Because the holiness of God, we cannot compare to it. But even if your earthly father who is evil can give you good gifts, this is the comparison. This is what Jesus wants you to see. How much more, how much more will your heavenly father give you good gifts to those who ask of it? And so what Jesus is begging his disciples and followers to do is ask, just ask, seek the Father. Asking means that we're awareness of our needs. We, we have an awareness of our needs and we go to the Father. Seeking the Father means that we have a life that pursues the Father's love. We seek the Father. You know, oftentimes as a father with my children, I, you know, my kids, if they just want something for their own selfishness or greed, I say, No way. No. And I have no I don't have a hard time saying that. But man, when they kind of get close to me and they suck up to me a little bit, it feels really good. Right? <laughs> Go to the Father in a way that's close and intimate and desiring him. God, I don't just want your hands, I want your heart. That's our heart. This is what Jesus means. And then be persistent. Knock. Persistent. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. And the door will be opened unto you. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Listen, church. If we don't understand the love of the Father, we'll never understand how to live the life that God's called us to live. We'll never understand it. And so if you're going to go after one thing with all your heart, Go after the father because he's good and he's gracious and he stands ready to help and serve you. And listen to me. There is no good gift that he withholds. And I say that after a time of hardship. And you know what that time of hardship has cause me to see? The best gift in the world. It wasn't the fact that I had my earthly father here on earth. It's that my heavenly father knows all things, sustains all things, and he makes the wrongs of this world right. And that while he does it, he offers me grace and mercy in my desperate time of need. And so as it relates to loving others, love others as you want to be loved. Love others in the same way Love others in such a way that they seek the love of the heavenly father that you show them an otherworldly love that it's nothing like they've tasted here, but they taste and see that the Lord is good and then they take refuge in him. This is the way we are called to live in this world. It's love God, love others, and live on mission. And we are called to give our lives to that. And as we talked about last week, we can't trust that this world is our paradise. This world is not our home. We can't put our hope here because our hope is with our Father who is in heaven. And so that we know that the only sustaining thing is to place our heart in his. Jesus illustrates this principle really powerfully about loving others. When there's a woman in John chapter 8 who's caught in adultery. Don't ask me how she was caught in adultery because somebody was doing some peeping Tom stuff looking for it. Don't ask me where the guy was because I don't know where he was. But somehow this woman was found out and they bring her out to the streets and there's a lynch mob ready ready to take her life because she had sinned against the holy God. She had taken her human body, which God made as a good thing, and she maligned it. And she gave herself to someone in a way that no one should give themselves to someone else, in a way that's unholy and unrighteous. And all of these things were true of what happened to this woman. And the lynch mob has gathered, and they've gathered their stones, and they're ready to trap Jesus. They're ready to put him on the spot. Jesus comes to the scene. They say, look at this. Are you going to let this go, Jesus? What are you going to do to this woman? And they extend their arm towards Jesus with a stone in it. Jesus looks at this woman with grace and compassion. Whose secrets have been exposed. And then he looks at the people that are ready to kill her and take her life and he has one simple response and it's this, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Are you not guilty of the same thing? And then the only sound that could be heard is from their hands the stones fall to the ground and as their feet are walking away you could hear they're stumbling and clamoring to get out of there, and this woman is left face to face with her savior. And Jesus says to this woman, "You're forgiven. Now go and sin no more." This is what he gave to us at the cross, because friends, we are the adulterous woman. We are the the people who have been in bribery. We are the people who have maligned the name of God. We are the people who have united ourselves to something that's unholy. We are, you fill in the blank, that's us. And because we've been given grace, listen, because we've been given grace through the cross, we should extend that grace to those who need it. How could Jesus say to that woman, your sins are forgiven, unless he knew that he would pay the penalty for her sins? Because God does not turn a blind eye towards sin. Either you're going to pay for your sin or Jesus is. And Jesus knew when he extended the arm of forgiveness to that woman that he would pay for her sins. And friends, I tell you, you can try to pay for your sins in your righteousness, but your righteousness isn't good enough. And the only righteousness that's sufficient for you is the righteousness of Christ on the cross who looks at you like he did the woman caught in an adultery. And he says, you're forgiven. Now go and sin no more. That we would be that church. That we would be that people. That we would be that kind of gracious to the world that's in need. Let's pray, Father, I thank you. Thank you, God, for your mercy that's given to us now. Lord, pray right now we would ask, we would seek, we would knock. Lord, those desperate cries of our hearts would be met with your response. God, when we pursue you, Lord, we'd feel your presence. When we knock, God, the door would be opened unto us. God, I don't even have to pray for this because you tell us that it's already ours in Jesus. It's already ours. So Father, help us take hold of your promise today. Help us remember, God, that you love us. There's nothing that can stop it. There's no earning it. But God, as a result of your love, God, we can be a people of your love in a world that's in need of your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.